Welcome to the Better Bozo. Love it. Great to be back. Today, it seems like, Jeff, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of guys that I don't know very well, um, but I'm very impressed with. I'd like to get to know them better. Um, Their names are Greg and Josh. And the first time I saw them, and I'll probably mention this to them, is... uh, a good friend of mine, a guy that I'd also like to have us have on our uh, on our show. We will actually, Abraham Leitner. Yeah, great. Um, he gave me a heads up. He said, "Actually, I got heads up from a bunch of different guys around the country who said, hey, there's a national call going on um, for white men to show up better.'" And I'm like, "Oh, I've been waiting for this for a long time." <laughs> and these two guys um, showed up on the screen. They looked a little bit like the two Muppets on the Muppet show, the two old guys sitting together. <laughs> right. But they did it, but they were young, they're young, they're cool. Um, they were, then they did a good job facilitating a first call with, I think there were over 200 people who showed up. Right. On. 250. Um, and they've been pushing this in, in to gain momentum slowly but surely. And they're showing up and they're sweet. They're mindful, they're respectful, um, and I wanna, I I wanna get to know them better because I wanna know what's you know what's behind what motivates them. Great. Can you say more about the call for white guys? Because it'd be easy for me, without knowing anything, to <laughs> think. What the, fa- what the what hell? The hell? <laughs> call for white guys? What do you mean? Like white guys need anything else? But it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like you said to show up better. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, you're right. You're right. That deserves to be unpacked a lot. Um, <laughs> right. Hey, everybody, let's all get our white guys on our white guy schedule and talk about conveniently. I mean, it doesn't sound like <laughs> that's what it is, but. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I mean, the conversation that I'd been having with Abraham at the time mm-hmm. uh, was telling him a lot about you. Um, and a lot about different men's groups that I'd noticed around. And he and I had been talking about how are we, again, I'm going to go back to that um, post-Kavanaugh hearing moment where he and I got on the phone and we were like, what are we doing? There's a role where we need to be playing and we're not playing it yet. What needs to happen? Um, and he and I had been going back and forth. Uh, we'll talk to Abraham when, when we do, but he was saying, look, um, the alt-right of our world, the Trump supporters of our world, um, guys who fall through the cracks and fall, and, and fall for the rhetoric are, you know, if you heard the chants at Charlottesville where they were saying, look, Jews will not replace us. I feel like beyond the supremacy there, I'm also hearing a fear of being replaced. I'm here. I'm hearing a fear of not yeah. knowing what my role is this in the world. And I'm hearing that it's easy to fall into supremacist rhetoric or alt-right rhetoric and that we are not doing. And when I say we, I mean, I'm just going to say me. I don't, I don't think I'm doing a good enough job reaching out to 
guys around me who are confused, who feel lost, who don't know what the future is bringing. Um, I am afraid of being unemployed. I am afraid of shifts that are happening in life. I feel like there's a lot of work that can be done reaching out to guys and creating a network. So when Abraham called and said, hey, these guys are putting together a call, I was like, oh, great. I'm so glad they did it. Ah, you know what? It's time. They're waiting for us. <laughs> time. There's more to talk about there for sure. Cause I've also got a, uh, a real resistance to, uh, reaching out to guys who I might think are assholes, <laughs> you know, and, and, and trying to be compassionate and, and to get that. Oh, like you said, beautifully, oh, they're afraid of being replaced. That's real. That's as real as anything. It is what it is. Now, is there a xenophobic spin to it? Yeah, and that sucks. And and how do we work sort of through, with, under, around that? So, without further ado, let's uh, let's bring Josh and Greg on to the Better Bozo. Thanks for being online with us. I'm thrilled and excited to have all four of us in the room together, so to speak. Uh-huh. So listen, I've been talking uh, with Jeff about the two of you and how we met. I love Josh said we have you have the EZLN just above your head. Like, okay, that ad- oh, yeah. identifies yeah, yeah. you immediately. <laughs> um, and I had mentioned that. To be totally honest, I don't know you guys very well personally. I think we may have had a couple of private conversations, but mostly um, I, th- I want to say I was introduced to you by a mutual friend, Abraham Leitner, uh, because he and I, since uh, again, back to the Kavanaugh hearings, had uh, had talked about what are we doing uh, You know, after that moment. And then um, he gave me a heads up and I actually got a heads up from like, I think two or three different guys oh, wow. that some, somebody is organizing uh, a national call for white men to show up um, and step up in a better way. Um, and, and that's how I know you guys. And since then we've been on several calls uh, you know, slowly strategizing and whatnot. But then Jeff stopped me and said, wait a minute, hang on. Well, why, why do white men need to be, what do you mean you're convening white men? Why do white men need to be convened? <laughs> so th- that's my, that's my intro for a second to, to this podcast. Um, and just to say that so far, you know, my impression is that, that Greg and Josh are sweet, good, mindful guys. And that, I think we're open to like what I'd like to do today is slow down a lot and maybe unpack where we're coming from and not jump in too fast to strategies and what we want to create. But what on earth? Um, where are we coming from? What's what's going on, guys? Why is this uh, an urgency? Is that right, Jeff? Do you want to? Do you have any? Is that a good way to? That seems great. Perfect. What on earth, Greg and Josh? <laughs> um, yeah, so for me, it started with me moving to New York, and I started, I attended a few, getting involved in Surge NYC a little bit. Surge? And no, 
uh, showing up for racial justice, um, New York City chapter, um, which is the organization organizing white people um, in white communities against racism. And noticed uh, the glaring problem that white men were conspicuously absent from uh, showing up for racial justice uh, meetings and events, and then also in the other anti-racist organizing spaces that I was in as well. Um, and in all this work, it's the white men are the main demographic missing, and the, the gender imbalance is so prevalent that there are more queer women in surge uh, than there are men. And so kind of understanding why are men absent from racial justice organizing and then also just like more broadly that there is no real organizing men against patriarchy and like all the work of organizing and fighting the patriarchal system has been on women, trans, femmes, uh, gender nonconforming folks. And when the men are the ones who are violently enforcing the system. They're the ones that benefit from it the most. And it's their, it's the structure that maintains their privilege and dominance. And so it needs to be on men to be able to change um, and deconstruct and dismantle their own patriarchal and racist um, behaviors. And that. Uh, then it also needs to be on the responsibility of men to organize other men to do so as well and reduce the labor that women, trans, you know, everyone else who's not a white man have been doing forever um, to fight patriarchy and white supremacy when the white men are the ones at this nexus of power. They're the enforcers. They're the ones that really violently enforce this and benefit from it. So um, seeing how we need to kind of change this dynamic. And so uh, I had a one-on-one -on -one with uh, Jennifer Hadlock, who is a showing up for racial justice chapter support staff member and was mentioning that. And I was like, what the hell is going on with this? This is weird. And then when you go to, so when you go to multiracial organizing spaces or you go to search meetings or events, it's like you can always kind of see that the men, the white dudes' expressions on their face is always like this look of feeling out of place or something or this like uncomfortability or it's like they're not used to not being in this like position of power almost. And like it's something they're in a space that people are working to dismantle these systems that privilege them the most. And so it's always like they don't know really what they're doing or they just seem uncomfortable or out of place. Um, wait, and wait, so wait. Jennifer, okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think so far you've got me. You're it's I've, I'm impressed with a super co coherent, um, like, wow, that was, that was actually one, one soundbite at a time. Really good. Coherent. <laughs> I love that you reached a point, um, that I can relate to, I think for a second, where uh -huh. we show up at a certain meeting and as a white guy, I, I, you know, I, I know that feeling. I want to just, I want to stop there. I want to slow down at that particular point. Um, because I feel like I have been that guy. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I want to see if we can yeah, yeah unpack yeah, that. I think we, many of us have been that guy and continue to be that guy. And um, <clears throat> so I've been working for about three years with uh, the same New York City chapter of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, S-U-R-J, um, which is a national organization with local chapters. Um, and so I was often that guy and, uh, and I continue in some of the, the kind of work groups that I'm in, in Surge NYC to, to be that guy or one of the very few guys. And I think part of it is that, um, there is an anti-patriarchal analysis in Surge, but there wasn't explicit anti-patriarchal organizing. So it was always understood um, that our lens was a kind of intersectional, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, uh, anti-patriarchal lens. Um, but the focus was certainly on anti-racist work. And there hadn't been a real inquiry into um, how patriarchy was reproducing itself within anti-racist white spaces like Surge. And what we found um, as we began to reach out to men involved in other surge chapters is that this, this pattern reproduced itself. Um, and I think that we also recognize that there actually was organizing going on, uh, questioning and challenging the patriarchy by men, but at a local level. And, and mostly unknown to us. So how do you the, mean, the what, what, what are you referring to? Like men's groups yeah, that are so, getting together? Yeah, exactly. So there are lots of different kinds of men's groups around the country. And some are kind of reactionary men's movement groups of men, uh, you know, to be cliche, you know, beating drums in the woods and, um, and focusing just on the problems that, uh, that, that men face without any kind of accountability for where, for where we are in power structures. Yeah. yeah. So um, Greg, the, just to translate that yeah. <clears throat> yeah. in my experience, it's pretty easy to get in a men's group and do exactly what you're talking about and feel justified in saying that we're doing our work in quotes, right? Get yes. with a men's group. Look, babe, people, community, I'm doing my work, except to your point, and I think what Josh is saying too, we're not looking at the bigger picture that we're just, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, we are just perpetuating the same patriarchal pattern where we have the privilege and the luxury to go to a men's group. And as Utah Phillips would say, beat drums and drag our scrotums through the underbrush um, and, and, and feel like we're better men because of it. And isn't that great? And now our wives are off our backs and cool. Life is good. Yeah. yeah and no and it's it's uh it, it's just you know re, kind of reproducing quote-unquote sunday widows in the same way a motorcycle club does or a basketball league i mean there are many i think we should recognize there are many men's groups of many kinds right and they organize around uh different kinds of events and activities um but few of them have uh have an analysis and an, an investment in in uh, in investigating and challenging uh, patriarchy uh, 
few of them come from a, a feminist political background. And that's what we were interested in in, in finding those that, that do exist around the U.S. and connecting with, uh, with some of the men who are involved in those groups. And so it's a, kind of an exercise in connecting the dots. Okay, so thank you for that. And a question that came up, Josh, when you were speaking, and again, Greg, when you were speaking, it might feel like an asshole question, and I want to ask it because it feels important to talk about, which is what's in it for white men to give a shit about that because they've got it so good? Why would... Why would I care, for instance? Like, I do care, but assuming I don't, why would I want to do that? What's in it for me, right. basically? Right. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's why we our name is uh, called Organizing White Men for Collective Liberation, because we are operating from a collective liberation framework, which is the idea that all these systems of oppression, so white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, colonization, work and interlocked with each other and reinforce each other in a way that harms everyone involved. And so it harms different groups in different ways to different degrees. But as white men, we are harmed by it as well. And even though we gain the most privileges from it and we are afforded dominance and the most power from that structure, we are ultimately harmed by it, which is why you see fascist movements or people that go to the far right because uh, the white supremacist patriarchal capitalist system creates extreme social and emotional isolation um, of white men particularly and that they are cut off from their emotions and that means they're cut off from everyone else which creates walls and um, you know self-isolation so it's like we like we are dehumanizing ourselves by participating stuck and participating, reinforcing and benefiting from all these structures. Um, and so that loneliness um, is why uh, the number one cause of death for men under white men under 50 is suicide. You have these high rates of suicide amongst white men, uh, drug overdoses, um, drunk driving, um, substance abuse, and the ways that that violence like those are this those are symptoms of how white men are harmed from it um and so by and that that isolation cultivates fascist tendencies in that they feel that like they don't have any support or community or ways to emotionally bond or spiritually connect with other people especially men because that's a sign of weakness or whatever and we have to like um destroy our emotions to be men um, and so the way that they build community or fraternity or camaraderie or whatever is like this mutual hatred of all these scapegoats of people that we should hate, like women or black indigenous people of color or trans or queer folk. And that they see that their pain, they think that pain is like these people that are different from them when it's actually that system mm. that they get from it, but they also are deeply traumatized and hurt by it as well. So it's in our interest to uh, dismantle patriarchy and white supremacy for our own like full humanization. Great. So if I'm hearing you, Josh, what's in it for me, for Mika, for you, for Greg, anyone who, whether knowingly or unknowingly, probably most unknowingly participate, is that you're going to feel a whole lot better and actually have mm -hmm. emotion and actually have connection that's not centered around uh, 
dysfunction, which is what I would call like the nationalist community is that it's a community, however, dysfunctional it's shared purpose. Uh, and, and there's, you, you, you get friends. I don't think they know how to have friends. Probably that's a broad statement, but, but so it sounds like we would actually feel and we'd be able to, to, to have richer lives in many ways, which I agree with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of want to push back on that just for a second, having been a soldier and having wanted to be a soldier and remembering that, what that's like and belonging, the sense of camaraderie that I had with my friend. And I was never a right wing supremacist or I never considered myself one at the time. But I do have to push back and say, you know what, the sense of camaraderie that I had with the guys in my unit or waving the flag growing up, um, where in my case, Palestinians were not welcome. We were totally supremacist to, you know, Arabs around and we felt pretty damn good about ourselves. Which makes sense. Yeah, I just want to, yeah, yeah. I want to throw that into the conversation and and I'm curious about the two of you because I, I, I should have flagged this at the beginning when we hopped on um, that I apologize if, if Jeff and or I interrupt for a second because you may have said something that I feel is might not be. I don't want to take it for granted. I want to unpack it and slow down even more because some of these things um, might seem basic, but are actually not They're I don't I don't take them for granted. Um, and I'm oh, thank you. that's important. And, and I'm curious, um, Josh, you're from Montana. Yeah. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about Montana? I'm especially curious about the, the guys you grew up with and are you still in touch? And, and do you have these conversations with homies at home? Right. Yeah. That's uh, we were just talking about it last night. We New York city guys got together. Um, and yeah, so I'm from whitefish. Uh, Montana, which is a ski resort town, lake town, um, and then a half hour away from Glacier Park. Um, and it's 96% white people. So it's literally just like this like fantasy land, like super wealthy fantasy land, white people paradise. Um, how it's like still um, like roughneck very much. So like, you know, individualist, like man, tough but like with some hippie elements and like total ski bro culture. Um, and so uh, we, there's a really intense drug and alcohol problem and culture there. And it's a very masculine dominated culture where we like can only really hang out or relate to each other if we were um, on some substance because everyone you talk about when people talk about it, they all say like, Oh, they all say I have extreme social anxiety and like where it's not like maybe necessarily social anxiety, but that social anxiety is because they don't feel comfortable around the men that they're all interacting with, that they don't feel safe and that they can't, they don't feel safe with their emotions. And so the only way that they can actually have real conversations or talk about real shit is when we're all messed up on MDMA or alcohol. And so it is people are all de- like, they're all like depressed, even though we have like all of this extreme privilege to like the most beautiful place in the world. 
our lives are skiing and boating and cliff jumping and hiking. But like, we were all super depressed growing up and we all were always having to be messed up on something in order to connect with each other. And we have, I have had many friends, um, all white men die from either a drug overdose or suicide or drunk driving. Um, and it was all men and everyone can like, you have these really intense conversations with each other and talk about all these problems that we are experiencing, but it's only when we're messed up and (sighs) outside of that context, that's not, that's like we brush aside or like, you know, use gendered, you know, demeaning language of like, we don't talk about that. And it's like very intense, Matt, like traditional patriarchal masculine notions of what it is to be a guy there for sure. Um, and so that was hard and there's like extreme, you know, like violence and socialization, like that men experience from other men of how to act. Um, and so that was, yeah, definitely my experience growing up. Um, I'm still tight with all my friends and that's kind of also a lot of motivation for doing this work is to be able to reach them and talk about this stuff and bring them into it. Even though like at first you're going to be like, uh, Um, Josh, that sounds so, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing that. That's not, that doesn't sound simple. It sounds super real. Um, and I, and I really appreciate hearing the motivation behind, cause I can relate to it. I can relate Mm -hmm. to it. Oh yeah. Same. Yeah. I can, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, living up in Netherland, the mountains in Colorado, but also coming from Jerusalem and. Um, and just knowing the motive of what's the fuel behind it, this, it feels, it's the first time I've, I've, I've heard where Josh is coming from and I've heard you a lot and I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. The thing that comes up for me strongly too, Josh, and what you describe, and I'm curious what all of you think about this in my experience, because of what you describe, right? That, that it's not masculine to be emotionally vulnerable. It's not masculine to stand up for uh, a minority or an oppressed uh, people in any Mm -hmm. way. Um, And it feels like what needs to happen then, because we spend so much time managing ourselves to not say the shit that would get us uh, ridiculed or shamed by our peer group of men's men. Mm -hmm. Um, So we take bigger risks like getting fucked up on drugs and alcohol, like cliff jumping, like, you know, for buying wasted at three in the morning or, you know, just really reckless behaviors. So for me, the the challenge becomes taking a different kind of risk, which I think is what you're describing with surge and with this Mm -hmm. national call, which is the risk of actually being vulnerable and saying, I don't, I don't, how are you talking about that woman doesn't make me feel good. And can we talk about it? Because mm-hmm. for the reasons you mentioned, that social, I can't remember, like you said something yeah. like violent social kind of put you in your place behavior. If you were mm-hmm. to take a, basically probably say something stupid is what they call it, but I, I would call it taking a risk. Mm-hmm. And it's a different kind of risk, right? As we let a little more of that out uh, of like what we feel. Um, and, and I had this a little more clearly in my noodle before but this transition basically like the pendulum swings from these crazy risk-taking behaviors over here over to oh what if i were to say what i believe in and what i don't think is right and we could have conversations about it uh i think we're all pretty hungry for that 
it turns out, but we get in this mass culture that's safe and comfortable enough. Mm. I think I heard somebody recently say um, that men in our society, because we have such a hard time being emotionally vulnerable, become physically vulnerable. Mm. We jump off a cliff. But, right. but I feel like this conversation in many ways is jumping off a cliff. Like hearing you share that to me feels brave. <laughs> and in that sense, I don't need to go physically jump off a cliff now. I just got my dose of adrenaline by being brave in a different, in a, in, a, in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just appreciated that, that equation, the, the less emotionally vulnerable, um, the more physically vulnerable I I might get, which which seemed right. Greg, right. are you relating to the, to these? You- uh, yes, yeah. I I think uh, kind of coming to it from a, a different angle, having a, a different upbringing in a different place, but with uh, a lot of the same uh, underlying systems uh, apparent in retrospect. Um, so while I didn't understand at the time, uh, I grew up uh, on what I now understand to be Massachusetts and Wampanoag land uh, in Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, um, and I grew up in an academic professional class family um, and attending relatively elite and sometimes very elite private schools. And, uh, but also in a, in an urban environment, in a, in a multiracial city um, that, depending on where you stood politically, was either celebrated or derided as the Berkeley of the East or uh, the People's Republic of Cambridge. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I think, it, so, you know, I, for example, in, in ninth grade, wrote my end of the year current events social studies paper you know you could choose any topic uh happening in the world at that time and i wrote about racism and classism at my private school and uh you know and interviewed the school headmaster the head of the board of trustees uh parents teachers other students um and but and i i think like as you know, this is because this is something I would talk about with my friends. There was kind of a uh, an unintentional divide between um, kind of extremely privileged suburban kids and then uh, some of the urban urban kids, most of whom were, were my friends. And and uh, and we, you know, we recognize these patterns, um, but we didn't understand. Uh, we didn't understand things like uh, internalization or systemic uh, expressions of 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 class uh, prejudice or, or internalized depression or something like that. Uh, yeah, or or just uh, internalized um, commitment to to uh, these sort of latent power structures. So for example, uh, we felt that when there were academic awards, they, uh, they, they tended to go to, um, 
students from kind of wealthy suburban families. And, and it, what we saw was a kind of rewarding of the culture. Mm. But we didn't, we saw this as unfair and a kind of something unfair that was committed by the faculty or the school. And, and I had a very good social studies teacher, but her one, and she liked my paper a lot, but her one criticism was to focus on the intent of the teachers and say, no, we didn't do that. We didn't, we didn't, uh, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. Actually reward, you know, that's, that's an unfounded accusation. Um, and, and which I think, you know, was her honest assessment from her own position that, you know, they hadn't intended to, uh, to, to reward certain types of students from certain backgrounds. Um, but we, as students, we were feeling the impact and we felt it as, and my friends and I would discuss it, we felt it as a kind of an injustice. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until much later that I, I sort of realized, okay, maybe the teachers weren't uh, intentionally being selective. But um, I think similarly, I didn't see my own um city and then the milieu that I came from as I thought of it as, as very progressive. And I think Bostonians and, and people from Cambridge like to think of ourselves as, uh, as sort of enlightened progressives. And, uh, but it's a bubble, right? It's a kind of ivory tower bubble built in and around Harvard university and MIT and a number of other universities um, and kind of affiliated organizations and companies that uh, creates uh, this kind of elite bubble of, I think, uh, obliviousness. Mm. I I kind of, I mean, I'm new to this country, I feel, but I'm recognizing, I mean, North versus South classism, like I just listening to the two of you describe your home and where you come from and, uh, kind of identifying with you, or who you are and the way you're mindful of it, I can't help but also hear uh, a lot of America, uh, like his, his, the history of America in in what you're describing. This isn't today. Like you're describing the the Cambridge that you grew up in or the whitefish that Josh grew up in, and it feels like, oh, this is every single... Um, historic narrative that I grew up with, the North and the South, slavery, classism, racism, sexism. And I feel like so, I mean, is it, is that just me? Am I just excited about that because I'm recognizing, oh, I've been here long enough to recognize these, the, 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 uh, the nuance in American culture and where we're going. I guess one of the things I've, I've really come to appreciate on the calls that you two had launched and are hosting is that um, before starting anything, we identify. We start with our identities. We name our genders and how we identify. We name where we are, but we also name the occupied lands that we live in. Um, And we name our, what is it, our, our class? Is that how you see it? I mean, all these, that's the first calls and I'd love to hear more about where, you know, this is a, this was this a conscious decision that you had decided um, before even starting the first call. This is the this is going to be a healthy way to go. 
to to address some of what you're talking about? Um, yeah, yeah. So, and uh, kind of any kind of introduction to meetings or anything like where what our social context is, what our social context is, is just as important as our names. Um, and have centering class and making sure that the voices and leadership of foreign working class men are like front and center of this is important. And so it's important that we name who is in the room so that we can also like not all just like have an assumption that we're coming from the same place because then that can inform the way that we talk about stuff. So um, for instance, a lot of the um, people that are involved right now are like upper, you'll hear like it's upper middle class people. And so it's important that we recognize that it's predominantly upper middle class people and that like that informs our work that we need to be conscious of how we organize that brings more men from um, different class backgrounds. Um, and then gender uh, is also what pronouns we identify with is always super important to be able to, like people need to be identified the way that they want to be pronouns. Um, and then identifying which land you're on um, is extremely important because we operate from a de uh, decolonization framework and the United States is a settler colonial, uh, you know, social construction. And this is originally and still is the land of Native American tribes. And we need to acknowledge whose land that we are presently on and have been occupying and been benefiting from that land theft. Yeah. And I just add to that, that I think it's, um, these are all practices in various activist communities. Um, and, and I think they're, they're changing. And so, you know, I would say it's within the last five or six years that I'm involved in meetings uh, where people begin by introducing themselves and their gender pronouns. And as a, as a man uh, and as a, as a straight white man, I, I think, um, for me, at first, I was uncomfortable. And people would say these things, and, you know, and I would say, oh, I'm Greg, I use he, him, or... or I'm just, one I'm just Mika, what do you... I'm just me. Right, right. Or <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what pronoun... You can use whatever pronouns you want. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so cool that, like... You know, you <laughs> don't worry about it. I'm, not, I'm trans pronoun. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, so I think that, that just the... the the repetition of this and the, it actually creates a kind of continual um, uh, reconsideration of all of these uh, norms. And similarly for class, I, every time we have a meeting, I think about how I'm going to present my. Greg is frozen. Greg's frozen in the Zoom. Hang on, Greg. Josh. <laughs> frozen in the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Ghostbusters. Greg's in the Zoom. Oh, yeah. Greg is still frozen. Yeah. He's in the Zoom. Um, <laughs> but I, so, so I want to. So just so I don't want to interrupt Greg, but I'm just going <laughs> to jump in there for a second and appreciate what he's sharing because I too know that. I was the first to say, don't worry about my pronouns. I'm just me. I'm not worried about that. And then as I realized that 
If I wasn't a, if I was, oh, we totally lost Greg. Greg will come back. Okay, he'll come I'm back. Confident. Um, yeah. See, there he is. There's Greg. Hey, sorry. No, you're sorry. okay, Greg. We were just appreciating what you were sharing. We were just talking shit about you while you were gone. <laughs> so, also when we talk about class, I, I always find it uh, difficult because I think in the U.S. we we have this. Uh, myth of a, of a classless society, uh, which is fundamentally linked to the notion of the American dream. I was thinking um, that Greg, when Josh was mentioning upper middle class, and I think that's also a myth, uh, right. the, the notion of a middle class has been dead. I think for now a couple of decades where right. there's such a disparity between the, the ones with the most money in the world that it's really more like, uh, just a little bit higher, lower class, I think is probably more accurate. That's not to take away the fact that there's privilege and there's money and there's all sorts of things in that. But, but I think that's also even, true. even in uh, kind of classical uh, or traditional class uh, distinctions, you know, upper middle class is some sort of budged middle ground. And it, <laughs> right. and so I've thought about what this means. So this is what I was told. Um, oh, you're upper middle class. And I, heard it as a kind of snobbery of like, I oh, like to not, think of myself as middle, upper middle class, we're not middle class. We're not, um, Archie Bunker. We're, totally. we're not we're closer uh, to the sky. We're, we're not Peoria, <laughs> Illinois. We're the, we're the upper, you know, we're not really like, uh, the Vanderbilts, but we're, we're that upper middle class. It's something better. And then someone in one of our calls in the last few months has commented, well, it also functions the other way. It functions as a way to, to say, Oh no, we're not, uh, right. You know, we're not the overlords. We're not the, the landed gentry where right. lower class and proud or some version of that. Right. Almost, so it's almost a way like of also, a, well, denying, uh, uh, responsibility, denying kind of class power actually. Um, uh, yeah, so it's yeah, sometimes yeah. used in that way, like out of guilt or shame. Right. <laughs> um, we're not the one percenters. Don't blame me for the patriarchy. I'm just, you know, just, slightly above middle right it feels well important and to i say think that. that this this goes through everything like and so i think when we talk about uh white people if we are white we have to acknowledge we are those people it's not them and if we are if we're white men you know it, it's us and we uh and all of the the problems are things that uh that are embodied in us. And, and we, and so that's why we, I think we need to do this work that is about uh, a kind of constant uh, critique and collective learning process. Right. Un unlearn these, these lifelong lessons of, of patriarchal masculinity of white supremacy. I want to put out a term that's coming to me as we talk about this, which is productive discomfort. Yeah. Uh, feels really important that we name that discomfort is not a bad thing. In fact, it's inevitable. And one of the things I work a lot with, with clients and men's groups is we have to not conflate uh, discomfort that could equal pain that we would need to move away from with discomfort that equals growth. And that's pretty hard, especially when we get in the terrain of, Ooh, I'm a white dude. I'm responsible for this shit. I'm riding on the backs of millions because uh, you know, I find it easy to go into collapse. I it, what that brings me to conversations I've had on campuses with students um, who have a hard time with the critique of 
Israeli occupation in Palestine, and they say, and this is in the States, and they say, I'm feeling unsafe. And I'm like, no, dude, you're not feeling unsafe. That is not what's happening. <laughs> you this, might, is, this is not happening. No one has a gun to your head. Literally. Yeah, you might be feeling uncomfortable, which is fine. That's actually the point. Yeah. Let's let's embrace that for a minute. You're not you're totally safe, though. We can have these conversations. Yeah, uh, we could certainly bookmark or even talk about right now the notion of white fragility, which I want to get after because it's pretty rampant. Um, and I think especially in the men's world where Mika and I talked about this last, maybe time last week about the war on men kind of thing. We don't know to, need to go there right now. And it feels deeply related and also pervasive. Mm. So I, um, I feel like there's a lot to talk here. I also want to respect our time and have a question about, I want to shift from, from this personal moment and political, you know, I use the word zeitgeist, the moment that we're that we're experiencing now, and also uh, extend kudos to the massive lift that you two took on and said, you know what, it's time we organized, took responsibility, and uh, invited folks to have this conversation. Um, and I, I saw the two of you, you were sitting next to one another on this massive call, hundreds of guys from across the country logged on. To see, because because apparently we were a lot of us were feeling this, uh, waiting for somebody to finally, you know, what, what's the word? Make the lift um, and invite us all on. Um, and the, and there was excitement, and and I think it's still there. And I'm curious. Um, it's uh, you know I'm I'm curious. Where do you see this going over the coming? I'm not as curious about over the coming years I am in like four years. I just first like to comment that Josh and I were the co-facilitators of that first call, which was April 29th um, from Josh's apartment in Harlem. And uh, we were very nervous, I have to say, <laughs> um, but it went well. But um, so much of that work had been done um, by a, small but much you know but larger group of uh of men um over about four months time um mm. and so yeah so um we met consistently for about a week uh, every week on a wednesday uh on zoom from around the country and so it was jeff ordauer eli berkowitz roger drew connor anstead uh, who's also in New York with us, uh, as is Tom Weinreich, um, uh, Abraham Latiner, who you mentioned, uh, Milton Ashelpole, Scott Sellers, uh, and other people intermittently, Sean Fisher, Mark Heise, Douglas DeCandia. So there were, and these are people in, you know, North Carolina, uh, St. Louis, Oakland, Boston, uh, you know, around the country. Mm. So. Okay. No, that's fair. Thanks for giving credit where due. It's probably also, you know, knowing that there's a momentous moment that, uh, uh, when, when something's time has come, the right people will get together and it'll happen properly. And I think that's definitely what I feel being involved with your, with this initiative. Um, it, it's an idea that was time has come. Um, and it, it sure as hell, you know, a couple of millennia late for, white guys to get together and say down with the patriarchy. Um, 
But still, on that level, then what were the discussions? What are you thinking? Where do you see this down the line? Do you, I mean, we don't have to jump into strategy too far or, or you know, what's the paradigm that's, um, that you're hoping to lean into? Greg, you can go <laughs> and I'll build off of you. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting to name the people I just named and, and recognize how foundational their, their work was to this. Um, at the same time, since April 29th, um, some of those people are involved in working groups, but most of them are not involved in the week-to-week coordination of, of the group. Um, but, you know, we have people like you, Mika, and uh, a number of other people who uh, we've just met since that first call. So within the last uh, less than three months. And um, so I think that is uh, an indication of, of how this really resonates for a lot of different people and also the way that uh, we tried to provide enough structure, but, but also enough uh, uh, flexibility and, and kind of permission for other people to get involved. And uh, I think we still need to do uh, kind of uh, uh, long-term strategizing and, and, and visioning. Uh, to see where this is going. Because I, I think we, we have, maybe Josh can talk about this more, we have uh, uh, alignment uh, in terms of uh, values and principles um, and kind of uh, political analysis. Um, do you want to take over from there, Josh? Um, sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, Greg mentioned yeah, we have this uh, mission statement and principles of unity. Um, and... Um, yeah, honestly, I, I have no idea, um, about those big long-term questions. Um, ideally it would be awesome to be able to have this network kind of just be, um, you know, something that is common knowledge as to be able to be a resource or a plugging in point for white men to join Mm. and have kind of um like broad based like kind of awakening of like yeah i am feeling all these feelings uh and uh the rise with like trump being a symptom and like the pus that is building up from that infected wound that is like a broad like a a huge disease that's like making people see like, okay, like this isn't just like some Republicans, like this is like how white people and white men are like violently wanting to maintain this, like this privilege that they have, that they think is being taken away from women, like people of color, like affirmative action or whatever. Mm. So seeing that this network can be somewhere that people can be plugged into, uh, get support to be able to do local organizing and have this be like training wheels for white men to like be able to be more effective accomplices to uh, black, indigenous, and other people of color, women, femmes, and trans folks. Um, and yeah, have this be where they can come in, get the support and resources they need, and then like go out into their communities and be effective accomplices um, in those other local contexts. But 
have this be a good plug-in point, I guess. That's the thing that <clears throat> I'm glad you said that, Josh, that I get super curious about because the call sounds amazing. The fact that there's a place to come and like you said, be seen, be validated, express what's cooking for each man and have camaraderie around their shared experience. That's huge. And without that piece you just mentioned, which is to go out and be accomplices, I think things can get pretty impotent because we've got to have a focus beyond that. Right, and and it might actually cause more uh, disruption and destabilization that our nervous systems are not really set up to handle if we don't have another direction to point it, like mm-hmm. finding more men that are like minded and similarly taking risks uh, and want to do something that matters, um, where we actually put our necks out uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to staying comfortable. So that that's it's great to hear, and I get curious where. Um, and I know this is burgeoning and, and nascent and it's all happening right now. That's a thing that I, uh, kind of to Mika's point, I think is that that's where my wheels spin. It's like, cool. What's next? How do we, how do the men who tune into your call then start some chapter, um, in their local zone and kind of, I think what you were pointing to Mika is the, the map of resources, be it men's groups or whatever else is available. Right. Yeah, I think that there are uh, two possible directions. <clears throat> and <clears throat> one is working with other white men um, or men across race um, in local men's group. And then um, also coordinating between those men's group, which I think uh, we're pretty well set up to do. Um, and I because we started nationally, um, we actually have people who are accustomed now to uh, organizing via conference call, which is something that I would say most organizations have a lot of trouble getting people to engage with because, you know, local organizations where people are accustomed to meeting in person. Um, I've seen that in, in showing up for racial justice, for example. So, you know, showing up for racial justice, all chapter meeting, um, that I've attended recently have maybe a dozen people, you know, they're, they're, and that's for a 10 year established national organization. Mm, so, um, and it's, those people are also kind of representative. So for example, I'm a co-liaison of the surge NYC coordinating committee to surge national. So I'm kind of the person responsible or one of two from my chapter. Um, but nonetheless, but uh, you know, there are over 120 or 30 chapters across the U S but still only, you know, 10 or 12 people show up at these calls. Um, it just shows that it's very challenging. Um, this was also my experience, uh, in Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and I worked at the very beginning with a group that, um, then I did not want to be part of because frankly, uh, conference calls sounded boring to me at that time, but I, I think, you know, there were a few colleagues of mine um, who really were visionary and understood, well, we need something to, we need a, a mechanism uh, of communication between these various Occupy encampments. So they formed InterOccupy, uh, which existed entirely uh, by conference call and has been instrumental in uh, not just Occupy, but in uh, you know, they worked with Black Lives Matter. Uh, they worked with many other social movements because they had already built that um, 
uh, translocal uh, communication infrastructure. Um, so I think on the one hand, it's about having these men's groups around the country. On the other hand, it's being very careful not to uh, reinvent the wheel and saying, okay, a lot of us actually came from surge chapters, for example, or other organizations. And that's how we built this so quickly, frankly. It's like we had, you know, we had access to all the mail lists of showing up for racial justice for a number of other organizations. So, um, and, and given that, you know, at the beginning of the call, we were talking about recognizing how few white men there were in showing up for racial justice chapters. So it would be a cruel irony if organizing white men for collective liberation were drawing men out of those chapters. It should be doing the opposite. It should be providing a space for men to deal with men's issues and consider the work that men can do and, and that men are best positioned to do, white men. And then go in and work with those chapters, work with other uh, local and national organizations. That feels like a powerful confluence of um, using privilege for good, right? Because we, we have a lot of it as white men. Yeah, and I, I just point to another thing that uh, Abraham Latiner actually mentioned on our first national call, which is this contradiction of uh, leading by example and leading with purpose among men. So in this kind of intragroup organizing white men. Um, but then leading with support uh, in other organizations that are people of color led uh, mm-hmm. that are either intentionally or de facto, as in the case of Surge, uh, uh, women and gender nonconforming folk led organizations. And, and yeah. it's, so that's a contradiction I think we can uh, sustain. And it's important to, to, uh, to work on both those fronts. Okay. I'll jump in, then you can go. Uh, I really appreciate that last part, Greg, because personally experiencing a lot of that, I lead men's groups and there's a particular role that I have and they're chiefly white, but there's some diversity here in Boulder. There's not much, but we get some of it. And boy, is it humbling and uncomfortable. I've started, um, I joined Extinction Rebellion, a local chapter here in Boulder, and it's a whole different bag. And there's one of me who gets one, I have social anxiety I've discovered about myself as I, as I just show up in the world more after being a lifetime gregarious sort of idiot extrovert. <laughs> uh, but as I get more attuned and sensitive, I realize, oh, wow, I'm really uncomfortable in groups. And then when I show up to these other meetings where they're led in this different style, where it is people of color, where it is, uh, you know, uh, women or trans people or, or people in the LGBTQ community, it's wild what happens for me. Like, I just want to just say, hey, can we get to the fucking point? Why are we taking so long? This is, you know, and I'm not typically that guy. It's really humbling. And so I, I say this both to kind of out myself with my own challenges there in that switching roles, which I find sometimes to be difficult. And I'm, I'm guessing other men in a position like mine or the ones that you're in or the ones on your call would probably have a similar challenge. That swap of, oh yeah, when I'm with men, cool. I can say, hey, no talking right now. This person's talking, you know, be really directive and really overtly masculine if we want to say that. And then to be really shut up, to listen, to defer as the default position 
without collapsing. And I think that's a really tough one for a lot of men to know the difference between uh, being quiet and present versus resentful and collapsing. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I, my experience on the calls has been, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but um, I come from an organizing background as an activist, and my experience has been massive burnout. Uh, it's been it's been no hanging out with in activist circles is 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 uh, toxic call out culture. Uh, needing to prove myself radical as as radical as can be, not having a lot of space to be confused, um, and in a sense also in the spaces where I've been active, which has been uh, literal occupation, military occupation, very physical, very violent, not a lot of support, not a lot of um, space to process what's going on. Um, and as a result, I've stepped away for a while now and stepping into this specific space, um, has been surprising, not actually, it's been surprising because it's not what I had expected. I had, I had come ready with my armor to step into another toxic organizing space. And what has ended up happening is I actually feel a little more called out to breathe, take a moment, um, and 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 I think what 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 I'm witnessing and experiencing is a mindful creation of the opposite of how can we call each other in? How do we take a moment and create an atmosphere where it's not just and 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 usually my go to is what's the strategy? I want to know vision, mission, goals. I want to know the benchmarks. I want to know what we're accomplishing at what date and be very um, practical about it. While actually I've been called out to say, hey, hang on a second. What kind of relationship are we building here? What is this? What? How are we calling more new folks in to feel at home before we even jump to proving that we're the most practical and most effective, but actually a, a new another community? And I feel like that kind of atmosphere, as we you know, as we're sent out to be active in other places, can also be super. It will have a ripple effect. It means I won't show up that way. And I'll know to take a breath. And if I do need to come back to this, you know, uh, circle of men where I can feel a little more comfortable and say, oh, my God, I can't believe this is what I experienced. And I need to vent for a moment. That is the safe place to do that. It's, it's still OK to be able to do both. Anyway, so that's yeah, that's a lot of what I don't know if that was intentional or not. It probably was. Um, I love that. Yeah. Uh, and what I've been saying is that, um, uh, yeah, organizing white men for collective liberation, all these calls and meetings and stuff that I, that we've been doing for the past, like seven, eight months is that this is one of the kind of healthiest, easiest organizing spaces I've been in because when organizing spaces aren't easy and it's like frustrating or you're just like, Ugh. it's like usually because of the toxic culture of like the, the white dudes in those organizing spaces are causing. Mm. And when you have this space where 
all these white men are being like hyper vigilant and self-aware and intentional about how they are acting and that they're coming into it knowing that we need to like work on this and like be super cognizant of that then it creates a really healthy organizing environment um and before like even before i had this self-awareness like more self-awareness obviously never perfect um but before i had that like i was one of those shitty white dudes like making the organizing spaces like shitty um and so this is yeah uh it's like really awesome how it's like so healthy super easy because it's like the white men are not being awful like they're not creating this toxic culture and they're coming in with intentionality do you think that other spaces you mean wow huh wait a minute other spaces where there aren't white men are all just (laughs) no that's that's true yeah yeah no that's true um i because yeah i've been in like yeah i'm in multiracial spaces and those are like also super healthy i guess maybe it's like the juxtaposition of the amount of white men in an organizing space and seeing the lack of toxicity and frustration there mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. seem like it's more like it's easier and healthier um whereas like at least in the multiracial spaces that i've been in so far um like coming to new york it's like super healthy and easy um but like when but that's also like i wasn't i'm not being a shitty white dude right now and the other men in those groups are not being shitty white men either but in the multiracial organized spaces that I was in before um like it wasn't like it did have that awful culture and i was like actively participating in that and contributing to it um and there are other groups here in new york city that i've been involved in that like also have been super toxic and there are multiracial um but it is because of all the shitty white people and those groups that aren't coming in there with that intentionality mm. I think there's a culture in showing up for racial justice um, and that I've experienced really in New York City. So I, I, it does vary from chapter to chapter. But um, Surge nationally has uh, principles, one of which is calling in. Um, and calling in uh, means kind of welcoming people, understanding where they are, and bringing them towards uh confronting white supremacy um as opposed to calling them out which is um necessary at some times and i think gets back to mika's point of like are you uncomfortable or are you really experiencing harm so when people are experiencing harm sometimes we need to intervene um and and call out behaviors um but if we want to reach people and, and shift their awareness and their actions, uh, we might usually be more effective calling them in. Mm. And um, so to Jeff, uh, one point I wanted to talk about uh, white fragility. And um, that's a framework that we use uh, in surge. And in particular, I've been involved for a couple of years. Uh, I was actually where Josh and I met. Um, uh, co-facilitating a workshop on uh, calling in uh, in New York and that uses the framework of white fragility and uh, comes from Robin D'Angelo. And it's uh, recognizing that, uh, that 
white people are not conditioned to uh, the experience of talking about race. Um, it's something that people of color have to kind of deal with every day, kind of the, the dynamics of race and the culture. But, but as white people, we've, we've largely uh, had the luxury of being oblivious to that. And so when these conversations or arguments do come up, um, uh, we're extremely vulnerable and, and hypersensitive, and we don't really know how to deal with it because we just haven't we haven't had decades of uh, that kind of life experience. So, um, it, white what what Ram D'Angelo calls white fragility uh, it then manifests itself in many different ways, and I think kind of most classically is a kind of defensiveness. Um, and so what, what we're uh, trying to share in, in these workshops and kind of uh, learn together is how white fragility uh, works and how to uh, keep from triggering it or when it's triggered, kind of bring the conversation back, not let it be derailed and have a productive uh, discussion so that we can all better understand uh, how systemic racism works. Mm -hmm. And I think there would be uh, similar dynamics uh, around patriarchy. So the same, uh, you know, there would be male fragility, you could say, that uh, yeah. that would work in, um, in similar ways. Right on. That sounds, sounds useful. Um, and I definitely have more questions about that. And I'm also mindful of time. So. Well, well there's a celebration for this week. The Organizing White Men for Collective Liberation Facebook page is now live. Uh-huh. Yeah, nice. yeah. yeah. One social media account. So, uh, Twitter and Instagram up shortly. So that's great. So we know that that's happening. That's growing. There's organizing. Wheels are turning. I can tell our audience that probably by the time this drops, um, there are going to be many ways to plug in at this point, at the very least, the Facebook is right there. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, down the line from state to state, city to city, coast to coast. Uh -huh. Um, this is definitely a network that's been seeded and is fertilized and will flourish, um, as it grows. I want to take my hat off to the two of you. Um, for for such an awesome lift and for sharing um, some of your story with us, uh, I, that's that's much appreciated. Yeah, same. Uh, I'm excited to hopefully be on a call if it works out schedule wise to really hear firsthand what's cooking and and how I can be of service. Um, and yeah, and the big email announcement list. You right. are sweet. No, no, Jay, oh, no. isn't. If you can add that email to, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Some real time. Yeah, Jeff, in, in no time, you're going to be organizing the, uh, yeah. the, the Rocky Mountain Collective of, of <laughs> Organizing White Men for Collective Liberation. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I like your, I like that, Greg. That's a good, solid endorsement. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, on our Facebook page uh, in the About section, you can find um our mission statement and principles of unity and um an email address that people can contact if they want to get involved or learn more wonderful so we're, we're starting a, a tradition here at the better bozo which is to ask 
you two to leave a question. What's a question for men that have a curiosity, a longing, a confusion for them to, to, to sit on, to let the wheels spin and plant a seed. Uh, and from maybe two questions, one from each of you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Greg, you can go first. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> nice okay. no, <laughs> nice so, deferral. <laughs> I'm going to uh, use a question that actually we use in the calling in workshop I was just mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually about race. Um, but it's, uh, when did you first realize you were white? Oh. Nice. Yeah, that's solid. And we use that as, a, as people come into the room as a, icebreaker mm-hmm. rather than have them sit down in their seats and uh, be kind of good conscientious little students waiting to take notes. We, <laughs> right. we want them to immediately uh, engage with other people, pair up and, and have that discussion, which is deep and difficult. Right on. I just had some feelings and a story pop up immediately. I won't <laughs> go into, but that's a solid. Thank you, Greg. Josh, what about you? Yeah. Um, and then mine would be, um, what is your biggest fear about getting involved in uh, doing anti-patriarchal or anti-racist work? So what would be the big barrier? What would prevent you from getting involved? And um, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Both very good questions to sit with. To take a look at. Not simple questions. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, you guys. This has been a total treasure. Awesome. And yeah, yes, thank you. link we can post on the Facebook page when you get this all links. Yeah, links will all be woven in. Yeah. And can we ask a question? Great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I want to know about is it like a better and betterer bozo? Or what, what is what is a, <laughs> a better bozo come from? Or who's more. Who's more bozo we bozo were? <laughs> <laughs> well, the better bozo and the deeper, the deeper doofus. The deeper doofus. <laughs> that's, that's mostly where it started was that Mika and I were talking about, he identified being more of a doofus and I more of a bozo. And so, uh, can I feel this one? Can I just, yeah, go ahead. It, it feels uh-huh. like, cause we're, we're, we're intelligent. And as men, we're also programmed to be kind of assholes bozos doofuses um and and the better part is is actually pretty meaningful for me because it comes from more of a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset which that fixed mindset is very much patriarchal be good you know you know kind of the go big or go home bullshit the no fear bullshit (laughs) as opposed to hey let's learn something let's be a little bit better let's let's know a little bit more about ourselves and someone else and and be a little more intelligent relationally uh whilst also owning that we're human not as a way to get out of or justify behaviors as a way to i think soften our stance on what it is to be a man um so that we can really embrace a little bit i think similar to what you're up to with organizing white men for collective liberation which is hey we're in this together we all have our strengths. We all have our edges and areas of growth. And let's let's do it together. Anything you want to add? No, that sounds great. Okay. When it comes down to it, it's also, yeah, it's it's not bombastic. It's not the Iron Man. It's <laughs> humble. Yes, I acknowledge I'm a bozo. I'm a doofus. I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks for the question. That's how we are. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. 
Thank you. All right, Greg, guys. Josh, thank you so much for making uh, time. It's really great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank yeah, you. I don't think this was the last time we'll have contact. Definitely not. Yeah, there's an outreach base building call at 8.30. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's true. Right on. Eastern time. Okay, yeah. 6.30. 6.30. 6.30 your time. So. I'll ostensibly be at an Extinction Rebellion meeting, but thank you. Oh, nice. Yes. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Take okay. care, guys. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.